Well, how's everyone doing this morning? Are we? I mean, I, I, you know, I know it's just sort of a, it's kind of a typical greeting. How are you doing? But I, I actually mean it this morning. <laughs> How are we doing? Are we, uh, are we, are we happy? All right, okay, we got, got some happy people. Good. Alan Noble, happy guy. No, are, are you happy? I mean, I, uh, he is. I love it. Uh, you know, I think it's important from time to time for me to see how you're doing. That's sort of, as your pastor, part of kind of my job description is to do a diagnosis from, you know, every so often, see how you're doing. My brother is a doctor. One of the things that he does, part of his job, is he, he goes through rounds, goes on rounds to see how his patients are doing, goes to see how they're doing physically. Are they doing, are they doing well? He's a, he's a surgeon, so he cuts people open and and, uh, you know, he, he, so when he goes to check on them, he's checking to see if the plumbing is working. That's really what he is. He's a plumber for the human body. And he just goes and he, and he checks, you know, does, where, do you have pain in your, in your abdomen? Are you, you know, are you, uh, uh, are you feeling fatigue? How, what's your blood pressure? Does it, does it hurt behind your eyes when you pee? Um, that's actually, those of you, if just, you know this, that isn't a symptom for anything. So if your answer is yes... You're a hypochondriac, right? So, uh, so yeah, so he goes and he checks their, their physical health. And as a pastor, I want to do that for you. How, how are you doing? Are you doing well? Are you, uh, are you experiencing the abundant life? Jesus, Jesus came, he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. That's what he came to bring us. So are you, are you happy? Now, I know we... We Christians, we don't like this word happy. We, we prefer a more spiritual word, right? Like joy, right? Happiness, that's what people that are not, you know, they don't get it. They pursue happiness, which is contingent on circumstances. But we know about joy, so we pursue joy. Okay, I get all that, but that's not where I'm going today. There's nothing wrong with the word happy. Jesus uses the word happy. In fact, the word blessed, blessed are those. That can be translated as happy. So it's okay. So I'm just going to ask you this question again. How are you doing? Are you happy? Now, my, my, uh, my assumption here actually is, or my suspicion, is that many of you may not be happy. Many of you may not be happy. Many of you may be at a point in your life where you are not experiencing joy. You're not experiencing peace. You're not experiencing happiness. That's very possible. And the reason why I think that that's possible is because in America, we are increasingly becoming more and more unhappy. Americans are increasingly becoming more and more unhappy. There was a study that was done. It was reported in Forbes magazine. This was about seven or eight years ago. This is before the major economic downturns began. So you need to understand that. This was at a relative uh, pro- prosperous time in our, in our country's history. And what it was is they were looking at the, the population of America, this is like eight years ago, had just crossed the 300 million mark. And they wanted to see, well, how are we doing in relation to in 1967, when the population reached 200 million. Uh, how, how are we doing? And basically, here's the headline of what this study said. I've shared this with you before. Here's what it says. We're richer and more comfortable than ever, but we're still dissatisfied. Polls say that average Americans think their parents had it better. We're increasingly unhappy. Listen to this one. Surveys in the 1940s and 50s were done, and what they discovered is that in the 1940s and 1950s, younger people were happier than older people. 40s and 50s, younger people, older, or excuse me, happier than older people. 
1975, they took surveys and they found that age and happiness were uncorrelated. There was no difference. In 1999, it had completely reversed and they discovered that older people were happier than younger people. So what we're finding is that with each successive generation, Americans are becoming less and less satisfied, less and less happy. We can get more specific with some of the things that contribute to our lack of of happiness. For example, depression. 1% of the population born before 1955, 1% of the population born before 1955 had a, a major depressive episode by the age of 75. Only 1% of the population, if you were born before 55, uh, by the age of 75 in that entire period, only 1% of the population had any sort of uh, depressed episode, severe depression. of the population born after 1966 have had a major depressive episode by the age of 24. We are an increasingly unhappy people. Uh, It says here the depression over the last two generations has increased tenfold. The suicide rate amongst young people in their 20s has tripled between 1955 and 1995. The the rate has tripled. Amongst adolescents, it's quadrupled. Then even things, just basic psychic distress, headaches, stomach aches, insomnia, all of these things are increasingly more apparent in younger people than in older people. It used to be the other way around. Older people used to have a, a higher rate of these. Now it's actually younger people who are experiencing more of this kind of psychic distress. So we are increasingly becoming a, an unhappy people. Now, why is this? Why are we becoming more and more unhappy? And uh, There's a lot of reasons here for sure, but, and I'm sure at this point you're expecting me to give you a very spiritual reason, right? This is where the pastor puts on his spiritual hat. I'm not going to get spiritual right now. I'm going to get very practical. It's going to prove to be very spiritual. But I'm going to start by being very practical. And here's the reality. The reason why we are unhappy is because we are alone. In general, across the spectrum, the reason why we are unhappy is because we are alone. At the same time that all of these studies have shown that we are increasingly unhappy, other studies are showing that the number one cause of happiness is community and relationships. I think I've shared this before as well. A Time Magazine article came out in which they looked at a number of different, a number of different research projects And the title of the article was called The Science of Happiness. And what they discover is that the single greatest factor for happiness is community. They estimate that 70% of happiness is a byproduct of relationships. And they go through and they say, look, there are all kinds of things that we think lead to happiness, right? Money leads to happiness. But we we know this isn't true. If you were part of the uh, series that we did at the beginning of the year, our series on money, we saw, by the way, uh, this... Just so you know, we, our website, we recently relaunched our website about a month ago. Uh, some of you may not even know that we have a website. We've been kind of keeping it under wraps, trying to get some of the things worked out. It's still not totally finished, it's still, but, but I would encourage you to go there. It's, it's in the bulletin. It's just rivervalecommunitychurch.org, rivervalecommunitychurch.org. You can go there. All of our sermons are recorded. You can listen to them. They're even organized by series. If you want to go in, you can go back and listen to the series on money, and what we saw is when we, when we looked at money, we looked at the biblical perspective on money, we saw that money does not make you happier. Or we talked about how uh, it, actually money is deceptive, it just makes feeling normal more expensive. 
Because if this is, your, uh, uh, this is your level of happiness and this is your level of lifestyle, here's what happens. When your lifestyle increases, when you get that promotion and you start spending more money on your lifestyle, your, your regular lifestyle increases, so you get that promotion and you, you get that bigger, more expensive house, initially you are happier, so your happiness level goes up. But then your happiness level goes right back to where it was. But guess what doesn't go right back to where it was? Your mortgage payments. So now it's just costing more money just to feel normal. So hap- happiness is, is not found in money. There's all, studies have shown this. Uh, education, there's, there's actually no correlation bet- between being more educated and being happier. Maybe being more successful, but not necessarily happier. Uh, youth, right? We tend to think, well, you know, Youth is where happiness is. Actually, as we're seeing, it seems to be the opposite. And what they're discovering over and over again is that by far the, the most central factor involved in happiness is relationships and community. A study at the University of Illinois showed that the top 10% of students, that the top 10 happiest students at the University of Illinois, by far the most salient feature amongst all of them was that they had strong community ties, strong relationship with friends, with family, and, and etc. Get this. The positive effect of community on your health, this affects not just your happiness, but your health, your physical health. The positive effect of community on your health is as significant as the negative effect of smoking. It's basically saying that, that not being involved in community is basically as, as hazardous to your health as smoking. They find that all kinds of illnesses, all kinds of, of diseases and whatnot, are, the rate is much less. Cancer is actually less uh, if, if you're in community. Less community, if you, or less cancer if you're involved in community. Less heartaches. Heartaches. I'm about heartaches. Heart attacks. That's what that should have been. You actually have fewer heart attacks if you are in community. Uh, You're less likely to catch a cold if you're involved in community. I know that seems backwards, right? I mean, this flu season, we're just trying to stay away from everybody. Just keep me in my house. Don't let me get near anyone. And maybe in the short run that works, but actually in the long term, you're more likely to catch a cold. Now, I'm, I'm sure that some of this has to do with immunity. Right? You, you, you're around people, it helps you to build up immunity. I just saw the movie War of the Worlds. Did you guys see this? The, the book, the famous book. These aliens come and they just, they just, they're just wiping everything out. They're wiping out humans. We can't do anything. We are completely, all of our missiles, we fire them at them and they just, they just nothing works. There's nothing we can do. We're going to be totally decimated by these aliens. And then you know what happens? All of a sudden the aliens all die mysteriously. And they discover that the reason why the aliens die is because of diseases and microbes that they're not immune to, that we were immune to because we've been in community for hundreds and thousands of years. So you see, community is important in fighting aliens. We don't stand a chance, folks. Studies show that globally, listen to this, this isn't just in America, but globally, those who are disconnected from community are two to five times as likely to die from all causes. So, why are we unhappy? We're unhappy because we're alone. We should not be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Because do you know what the second thing is that God says to humanity? You don't answer this. This is where I know some of you... Some of you, like, grew up, you were those, that, that kid in class that always yelled out the answer. This is a rhetorical question, so don't actually answer me right now. But, okay, the first thing that God says to humanity, the first thing that he says to Adam is he says, 
you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. Now, let me just, a little tangent here. God is not restrictive. Sometimes we think that following God means I've got to give everything up. The very first thing he says is you can eat from anything except for this one tree. God is not restricted. That's another whole sermon. That's the first thing that he says to Adam. You know what the second thing is that he says to Adam? Now you can say it. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. I mean, if he eats of this tree, he's going to die. And if he doesn't have community, he's going to die. Right from the get-go, we we see that, that community is important. Biblically, we see that community is incredibly important. We shouldn't be surprised by this, especially when we understand that we were made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 says that we were created in the image of God. We were created to reflect who God is. And one of the most profound insights that we discover, particularly in the New Testament, though it is absolutely hinted at in the Old Testament, I can't go into this now, but what we find, which comes to a fuller revelation in the New Testament, is that God in his very nature is a communal God. We talk about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence. Uh, I don't know how you find the words to describe this. The church argued over it for about 450 years, trying to find the language to, to, to how, do you, how do you put into words this mystery. Martin Luther, in a sermon that he gave on the Trinity, he basically just says, look, God will forgive us for how we bumble around trying to describe the Trinity. But it's just trying to capture this incredible mystery that God is a, a communal God. We see this in, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and, and baptize and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We see this communal nature of God. Let me just read one passage for you in, in John chapter 17, where we see this dynamic of relationship between Jesus and the Father. Jesus says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. It's this incredible picture of this, this community that has been in, in existence for, for all of eternity. And, and, and we see this, we see this throughout, throughout the scriptures, that God is a communal God. And, and this is one of the ways in which we as Christians can articulate what it means that God is love. God is love. You've heard that phrase, and, and other people who aren't Christians, they'll say that sort of thing, God is love. But I think that we actually have the, the theological background to be able to back that up. Because you think about this, love requires a subject and an object. When we say God is love, we aren't just saying that he's a guy who happens to be loving. Like that's just sort of his M.O. That's sort of his disposition. No, we're going even deeper than that. We're saying he is love because within his very essence, within his very existence, you find that they have, there has been a subject and an object, the Father and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally been united, eternally loving one another. It's this community of love that God is love. And we were created in that image. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that we need community. 
We shouldn't be surprised. And, and in fact, the gospel, the gospel is not just about us being reconciled with God. It's about us being reconciled with one another. Jesus died on the cross in, 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 in Ephesians. It says so that we're reconciled with God, but also it talks about how the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down through Jesus' death on the cross. And likely what it's talking about there is the wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles at the temple. It's a way of saying now God is bringing people together. He's uniting them. There's, there's vertical reconciliation, but there's also horizontal reconciliation. And we see this working out in our passage today. This is sort of a long, extended introduction here. In Acts chapter 2, what happens? Well, going back to Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, go to Jerusalem and wait for my spirit to come upon you. And so they, they go to Jerusalem and they wait, and the spirit of God comes upon them at Pentecost. And then we discover in our passage, immediately after that, immediately after the spirit comes, we get this incredibly thick description of community. That's what emerges out of the fact that the Spirit has come upon God's people, that that they have repented of their sins, they've been reconciled with God, but now they're being united with one another. Look in this passage of how it just talks about, about togetherness. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Everyone was filled with with awe and, and wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and everything was in common. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. You see this theme over and over again that the Spirit has come to unite us to create community. We are continuing in this series which we began last week which we're calling Stoke the Fire. And basically what we're doing is we're just looking at... Uh, well, it looks like our screen is out. So maybe, are we out, Nick? All right, keep working on it. We'll get there. You, if you need to turn it off and start it up again, that's fine. We, we won't be distracted. Everybody will pretend like there's nothing going on, right? Everybody, if it starts to do weird things, just pretend. It, this actually might be poetic when I get to my main point, but we'll see here. Uh, if, just try to figure it out. Do whatever you need to do if you need to come up here or whatever, I think. If it gets really distracting, I'll tell you to stop. So we're going through this series called Stoke the Fire. We're looking at the vision of this church. And we're we're calling it Stoke the Fire because vision is like a fire. It's like a campfire. And if you don't keep stoking it, if you don't keep putting wood in there, eventually it will start to to die down. So we've got to keep stoking the fire. So you guys have heard me talk about this before. Let me just say the vision statement. We are here to create a community of passionate followers of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, connection, and service, that we may renew all things with his love and for his glory. Just imagine that that's on the screen. See? It's up there. Okay. And what we're talking about is we're looking at this middle section. Uh, It's actually on the back of the bulletin if you want to look at it. But this middle section talks about worship, connect, and serve, that the way we are carrying this out practically is through these three pillars of how we carry out what we do in the church. We looked last week at this idea of worship. We saw the priority of coming together. The, the, reason, the primary reason that we gather together uh, for worship is to refocus, to get a, a, a refocus, at reminding ourselves that our entire purpose in life is to worship God. That when we go out these doors, we go out there and we praise Him with everything that we have. And when we, when we start to get out of the habit of being within Christian community and coming together and worshiping, we start to get sloppy. We no longer begin, we, we lose the forest for the trees, we get caught up in the, the daily grind, and we forget that in everything that we're doing, we're called to be worshiping God. That's what we saw last week. 
Today we're looking at connect. We're looking at, we're looking at community. And, and so we're, we're just going to unpack this because what we're discovering is that community is absolutely central to our well-being. It's absolutely central, uh, really, uh, to, our, to our health. So what I want to do is I want to propose for you, I want to propose for you two things that we're going to do to build community. <clears throat> two things we're going to do to build community. The first one is this. This is actually quite ironic. The first thing we're going to do to build community is you're going to put down your remote control. That's what you're going to do. We're going to put down your remote control. And here's why. Because there's all kinds of research that is showing that the number one reason for why a community does not happen in somebody's life is because they're watching television. Without any question, that is the single greatest factor. Let me just, you guys have heard this before. You're like, oh great, he's going to tell me TV is bad. Like, I've never heard that before. Well, just listen to me for a minute. Okay, let me just bear the weight of this for you here. There are two things that we have discovered, uh, we've, we've looked at here. We've, well, first of all, we've seen that everybody's unhappy. Uh, and we've also seen that happiness is very much connected to community, to the lack of community. That when you don't have community, you're unhappy. So we've seen a decline in happiness within America. We've seen a decline in happiness within America. So n- now what we should then assume then is that there's been a decline in community in America, right? That's what we should assume. And guess what? That's exactly right. Since 1950, there has been an unbelievable decline in community in America. Let me just kind of share a little bit. With each successive generation, there's a great book that came out called Bowling Alone. Robert Putnam put out this book in, in 2000 called Bowling Alone. And it's, it's basically about how in each successive generation, involvement in church... And other local organizations, political rallies, uh, political meetings, even dinner parties, having people over for dinner, all of these things with each successive generation have continued to decline. One Washington Post article in 2006 said that Americans are more socially isolated today than they were two decades ago. And a sharply growing, uh, sharply growing number of people say that they have no one in whom they can confide. A quarter of Americans say that they have no one with whom they can discuss personal troubles, more than double the number who were similarly isolated in 1985. It's actually quite interesting. When you look at it, they discover, when did this happen? When did this take place? When did this decline in community begin in our country, which just continues to escalate? And it seems that it happened in the 1950s. Robert Putnam kind of sums it up by saying, he says, it's almost like something happened in the 1950s. Something happened that, that, that people were zapped with some sort of gamma x-ray that just made them completely unable increasingly to get connected into community. Does anybody have any idea what was invented, what became widespread in 1950? In 1950, there were televisions in 6% of homes in America. By 1960, there were, almost, there were, there were televisions in almost 90% of homes. All the evidence, there's all kinds of things that do point to the decline of community, but by far, the central issue is that of television. Uh, Putnam says this, he says, Nothing, not low education, not full-time work, not long commutes in urban agglomerations, not poverty or financial stress, is more broadly associated with civic disengagement and social disconnection than is dependence on television for entertainment. Right, you think, well, it's, it's because I'm busy. I'm so, I'm, we're so much busier than we used to be. Well, that's sort of true, but we're actually less busier than we think we are. 
We're less busier than, than, we, th- than we think we are, right? Those of you who are older here, you're being vindicated right here because everybody here, we all thought you were slackers, but you weren't. You weren't. I mean, it does seem like we're a little bit busier, but it's not significant. It's not significant. Uh, and what, what about commuting? What about long commutes? Yes, they do say that that certainly has contributed, but not as much as you'd think. It's actually interesting. The busier someone is, there's, there's less, significantly less correlation between busyness and not being involved in community. Busy people tend to end up not watching as much television is what happens. So actually, if you're, uh, if you're not busy, you end up watching television, you end up being less involved in community than some of the busy people. So it's not, it's not a matter of time, it's, it's not even uh, a matter of, of commuting, right? The, this, the number one issue here is television. He puts it this way. Dependence on television for entertainment is not merely a significant predictor of civil disengagement. It is the single most consistent predictor that I have discovered. So the first thing that we need to do is put down the remote control. Now, I'm not telling you to get rid of your television. This is not one of these TV is terrible, it's evil. You need to use moderation. You need to figure out. If you can't, like if you're addicted to your television, maybe you do need to get rid of it. Right, now, what about, what about the Internet, that sort of thing? There's less information on that. We don't know as much about the effects of the Internet. It does seem like, to a certain extent, there are different ways in which you can use the Internet. TV is just entirely passive. You just sit there. In fact, there are studies that show that that if you watch TV, you end up being more passive all day. Like, it just makes you passive. And then even when you're not watching TV, the activities that you choose to do tend to be incredibly passive. With the Internet, it's not as clear because there, there are some ways in which you can be more active. So that, we'll, we'll come back to that in 30 years. We'll address that one, right? But right now, we, okay, first thing you do is, is give up your remote control. If you're using the Internet to watch TV, that counts, right? You can't be like, no, I'm watching Netflix on my computer. That, no, no, you got to, right? You figure this out. We, we've got to disengage. I'm not telling you to get rid of it. I'm just saying if we want to build community, this is practically the single biggest issue which we have to deal with. That's the, the first thing that we need to do if we're going to build community. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was going to, we can show my, my little graphic. Go to, there we go. Right? Right? That's, that's the x-ray that, that sucks life out of us. It's a television. Okay, you can go to the next slide. All right. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to get, we're going we're to put the remote control down. And secondly, we're going to sign up for a community group. Right? I just had you fill out that survey earlier this morning. If you weren't here when we filled out the survey, we will have more for you next week. We had a survey which is basically just trying to figure out when people could get together to meet for community. And I just want to highlight for us the three reasons for these community groups. We want to, we're going to launch these again after Easter, trying to get people to meet at different times depending on your schedule, your needs and whatnot, finding ways for us to, to build community. And there are really three things, and I'm going to talk about this more in, in coming weeks, but really our community groups function in, in, in three ways. First of all, relational. The purpose of our community groups are relational, right? That's what we've been talking about for this entire message, so I won't belabor that. The second purpose of these community groups is transformational, to be transformational. And I, I say this because what we're talking about here is that Christian community isn't just about having friends. In Proverbs 37, it says that iron sharpens iron. <clears throat> just as iron sharpens iron, so a man can sharpen a man. That, that when we gather together in community, that we can actually help our, help help ourselves to become more and more, not just experience happiness, but experience Christ-likeness. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
The idea of community groups is that we get together, we take the truths of the gospel, we take the truths that I'm proclaiming every Sunday, and we take them and we apply them personally, and we have others to help us, help us apply these to our lives. And if we are truly a gospel-centered church, this will become easier. Because you will be in an environment where you don't feel judged, you don't feel looked down upon. If this is truly a gospel-centered church, the heart of the gospel is that none of us uh, deserve God's grace. None of us deserve it. It's all by His grace. And so that, that fosters an environment in which you can truly be authentic with what's going on in your life and that we can encourage one another and, and bring transformation. I say transformational very intentionally, transformation as opposed to information. These community groups are not just informational. Uh, there's a Steve Musser, who is the, super, the superintendent for the Eastern District of our denomination. Uh, he recently gave a lecture in which he talked on what he called focus drift within our denomination. And then all the churches in our denomination within the Eastern District. And he highlighted one of the areas of focus drift is he said that churches in our denomination have tended to focus on deep teaching and not on discipleship. So in other words, evangelical free churches are actually very good at communicating the truths of the gospel. That we're very good, we've got good Bible studies, you can learn lots of good information about the Bible, but it's not transformational. It's just informational. And this is why I don't really like the term Christian education. I prefer the term Christian formation. Because the whole purpose of this is that it, we're not just learning stuff. We're, we're bringing it into our lives. We're, we're allowing it to integrate with, with what is going on in our lives, and it's bringing transformation. So we, we want these community groups to not just be informational, not just, oh, this is a really interesting Bible story, but how does this actually intersect with my life? That's transformational. So relational, transformational, and finally, missional. Missional. The idea here is that even within these community groups, this will reflect what we're trying to develop as a culture within our church, and that is what I always say, we are not saved from something, we are saved for something. We're not just saved from something, we're saved for something, that God has called us to get out and be involved in our community, to reach out to those who are, those who are in need. And we want to cultivate that kind of culture even within our groups. That our groups that get together, they don't even just necessarily get together to, to study the Bible and to, and to help one another in, in their own personal transformation. But as a group, they're beginning to think, how can we engage our community? What are things that we can do? Let me just give you an example of how this might work. We have coming up uh, in a couple of a couple of weeks, some service outreach opportunities to go out and serve in the community. This is just one uh, that we have right now. We're going to be able to go out and help clean up the Hackensack River just to go out and serve our community. This is the sort of thing we're down the road. What we would love to see is entire community groups saying, hey, let's go do that together as a group. Let's go as a community and, and let's do this. How can we as a community reach out to our friends and our neighbors and invite them in to see what this is all about? This is what we're trying to do with these community groups. So, two things that we're going to do to build community in our church. You're going to put down the remote control and you're going to sign up for a community group, which we're going to start in, in, in several, several weeks here. Uh, we're now coming to a time of communion. And communion, interestingly enough, is a wonderful opportunity for us to build community. Because communion is is something that we do that reflects the very heart of the gospel. And what we've seen is that the gospel is about vertical reconciliation, but it's also about horizontal reconciliation. That when we partake of the elements, uh, we are coming before God, 
We're coming bare before him and, and saying, Lord Jesus, we need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We have turned from you. We want to be reconciled with God. As we take these elements by faith, we can begin to experience the presence of God as we receive his forgiveness. So communion is, it, 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 it's vertical reconciliation, but, but here's the thing. As we, per, as we take of the bread, which represents the body of Christ, as we take the bread, which represents the body of Christ, we do it together as the body of Christ. You see, I don't know if you thought about this before, but we encourage you, uh, we encourage you to study the Bible by yourself. We encourage you to, to pray by yourself. Uh, we encourage you to meditate by yourself. We encourage you to worship by yourself. But we don't really talk about taking communion by yourself. Because communion really is something that is for the body. It's something that we come together and it unites us. As we are drawn into communion with God, we are also drawn into communion with one another. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we praise you that you have come for us. You have come to reconcile us with you. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here who feels distant from you, I pray that as they come before you and acknowledge their need for your grace, I pray that they would experience your forgiveness. Some of us, maybe we felt distant from you for a while, and so in this moment, Lord, I pray that we might sense a reconnection with you. Maybe for some of us, for the first time, Lord Jesus, we might take of the elements, and in our hearts, Lord Jesus, we would profess that you are Lord, that you are our hope, you are our salvation. Lord, I pray as we take these elements, we would receive your grace and be united with you. Lord, I pray that as we take these elements, we would be united with one another. Lord, I pray that if there is uh, any bitterness amongst one another, that even as we take this, Lord Jesus, it would be removed from our hearts. That the things that separate us, the, the, the walls of hostility that separate us from one another, Lord, that they would be brought down as we partake of your body and become the body of Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.